This year sees 50 years since the debut of the Six Million Dollar Man. So how better to celebrate than to look at the end rather than the beginning? The Six Million Dollar Man finally stopped running on March 6th, 1978, with the airing in the United States of The Moving Mountain, the final episode of the television series that centred itself on a cybernetically enhanced astronaut named Steve Austin, played by Lee Majors. After five seasons and over 100 hours of television, the bionic hero was cancelled unceremoniously by ABC Television to be replaced by Battlestar Galactica. In a quirk of coincidence, one of the actors appearing regularly on Galactica, John Colicos, guest starred in the final episode of Six Mill. Other than that, though, there would be nothing special about this episode. There would be no conclusion to Steve Austin's story. As per the standards of the time, The Moving Mountain was just another episode, with no wrapping up of Steve's plotline, no conclusion to any stories, and no indication as to what would happen in the future. The series just... stopped. This meant that all 100 plus hours could be packaged up and sent into profitable syndication, where it would hopefully run on forever, the characters perpetually frozen in amber, forever young. The reasons for older television shows having no conclusion are myriad, especially in America. US network executives had the reputation, not undeserved, of being ruthless automatons. They couldn't care less about art or story. Once a TV show had outlived its usefulness, i.e. it no longer sold washing powder, it was canned. Production on a season of TV would traditionally end in February, March, with episodes airing up until April or May. Actors were contracted until June. The networks would normally announce their autumn slates in June, meaning any shows that were cancelled just ended. Producers were given little to no warning, and the acts normally fell long after production on the show had ended, giving those same creatives no time to create a final show that snipped off any loose ends. Actors who had cushy and well-paid jobs one day woke up the next to find themselves unemployed. A TV show could run forever, or it could all end tomorrow. Overseas, the shows would continue to err through 1978 and into early 1979, but as far as new episodes of The Six Million Dollar Man were concerned, tomorrow was today. No reason beyond ratings has ever been given for the cancellation. Certainly, lead actor Lee Majors was becoming bored of the role, something he's made clear in subsequent years, primarily giving the physical toll the filming took on his body as the reason. Majors almost didn't return for season five. Martin Caden, author of the original novel that spawned the series, felt Majors' personal life was to blame for the cancellation, and he felt they should have killed him off and replaced him with Monty Markham, who, on the show, had portrayed Barney Hiller, the seven million dollar man. But Caden seemed to be majorly down on Majors for some reason anyway. Harv Bennett, the series producer, had mostly moved on by the fifth season, leaving the day-to-day -day running of the show to Fred Freiberger, but said that if he'd known it was going to end, he'd have concluded the series with Steve launching the first manned mission to Mars. Unfortunately, this never came to pass. In tie-in media, the Six Million Dollar Man would end its American comics run from Charlton Comics in June 1978 with issue 9, 
and the magazine, which was aimed at a slightly older audience, would end its run after seven issues in November 1977. This can't be given as any indication of falling audience interest or sales, though. Charlton Comics, who'd published the series, suffered a massive exodus of artistic talent in 1978, in which every artist known to be connected to the bionic books left Charlton for DC. With virtually no one left to create new material, Charlton management ordered their entire comics line to cease publishing. According to comic book artist issue 9, the $6 million man and its spin-off title The Bionic Woman, plus many others across the line, were no more, simply because Charlton had effectively become a reprint-only business. In the UK, New Adventures would appear in Lookin magazine through to March 1979, a full year after televised episodes ceased production. Steve Austin's solo strip would be axed, but replaced with a new strip, Bionic Action, which would team Steve up every week with the bionic woman, Jamie Summers, who had also had her solo strip axed. Bionic Action would run for another six months, implying that the strip was still very popular with readers, or ITV was still burning off episodes of both shows well into the summer of 1979. But for the most part, that was it. A pop culture phenomenon laid low by the vagaries of network ratings and publisher whims. Colonel Steve Austin had been a man barely alive. He'd been to the moon, travelled in time, fought Bigfoot and the Death Probe, and even met extraterrestrial life. But even he was no match for that most nefarious of villains, the Channel Changer. It would be 36 years before Steve Austin would return to comics to pick up where he left off. Oh, in the interim, there had been a few attempts to bring Steve and Jamie back in comics form. In 1996, Rob Liefeld's Maximum Press announced Bionics with an X because it was the 90s, a comic book that would have seen the return of the characters of Jamie Summers and Steve Austin. It was solicited to trade publications for delivery in 1996. It got so far as to having a small teaser published in Asylum Issue 6 with a script by Liefeld and Robert Napton and art by Brian Denham and Norm Rapmund. It was a short, black-and-white story in which Oscar remembers the $6 million man and the bionic woman as he prepares himself for retirement by packing his desk. It must have gotten quite far along, as I remember seeing ads and promos for this, although it seems like the comic ultimately never made it to press, possibly a victim of Liefeld's acrimonious 1996 split with Image Comics, Possibly a change of mind by Universal's licensing department. I guess we'll never know. The designs for it were pure Rob Liefeld. Steve superficially resembles Lee Majors, but he's all rippling muscles and off-model musculature. Jamie is likewise far more sexualised than Lindsay Wagner would have allowed, sporting thigh-high boots, a miniskirt and a beret. Okay... When the characters did return, thanks to Dynamite Comics, they were far more on brand, thanks to six absolutely wonderful covers by Alex Ross. The Six Million Dollar Man Season 6 would feature stunning covers from Ross, reflecting Majors, Wagner and other actors associated with the show, 
Richard Anderson as Oscar Goldman, and Martin E. Brooks as Dr. Rudy Wells, as well as Monty Markham as the $7 million man, perfectly. Jim Kohurik wrote the series, with art by Juan Antonio Ramirez for issues 1 through 5, and David Cabrera for issue 6. I can't find out why Dynamite ditched the rebooted Bionic Man series, which I covered a couple of shows ago, for a continuation of the TV series in comics form. Only quotes from Kuhurik saying, When Dynamite approved my pitch for the continuation of the original series picking up after the final fifth season, I knew I had to bring back all the things that made it special to me back in the day. The book has a specific look to it, and will feature many of the main characters from the show. We went out of our way to use the kung fu slow motion, the sound effects, and all the oddities of the era so the comic book would feel like the original television series. Now, originally this made alarm bells ring a little bit. We are setting this in 1978 when the show went off the air, but the oddities weren't oddities when the show was erring. It was just what the show sounded like. The could be a desire to mock the series here rather than embrace it. You also can't get around the fact that it isn't 1978, so there is going to be baggage present that simply wouldn't have been there back then. It's also very present from this statement that this won't be what would have been made back then. If Six Mill had gone to a sixth season, it probably just would have been more of the same. Kohorik is saying here that he's going to play with continuity in a way that simply wouldn't have been attempted back then. Issue 1 starts with a teaser, like many episodes of the show, and then the comics version of the iconic opening titles. You know, this one. He looks good in this one. Roger. BCS arm switch is on. Okay, Victor. Landing rocket arm switch is on. Here comes the throttle. Circuit breakers in. We have separation. Roger. Inboard and outboard, they're on. We're coming forward with the side stick. That looks good. Hey, Roger. I've got a blowout. Paper three. Get your pitch to zero. Pitch is out. I can't hold altitude. Direction alpha hold is off. Trip selectors emergency. Flight calm. I can't hold it. She's breaking up. She's breaking. Austin, astronaut, a man barely alive. Gentlemen, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. We have the capability to make the world's first bionic man. Steve Austin will be that man. Better than he was before. Better, stronger, Faster. It is hard to describe nowadays to, to people who weren't the man or didn't grow up with this kind of things how an opening credit sequence to a television show could really set the mood. The Six Million Dollar Man's opening credits is one of the most iconic of the era. It is still quoted today. People still say, a man barely alive. They still say, we have the technology. It's arguable that they may not even know where that comes from. Those phrases have just become part of the lexicon. 
It's an incredibly well-paced and well-edited sequence that brings the audience up to date with who Steve is and what his mission is going to be every week in the space of little over one minute. Many TV shows would copy this formula to a T, The Incredible Hulk probably being the most successful. Issue 1, entitled It Came From Deep Space, opens like an episode, I'll give Kohorik that. It mentions the Russian Venus probe, aka the Death Probe, from the fourth season episode of the same name, and that NASA launched their own version, the Venus One Space Orbiter. The probe came into contact with a radioactive anomaly and subsequently disappeared from radar. Despite the fact that comics have no budget and can do what they want, I could practically see the TV show doing this opening, albeit with copious amounts of stock footage from the NASA library. I could also practically hear the music. It's hugely evocative of the show. So we're off to a good start. Of course, that's merely the beginning of the story. Oscar Goldman tells Steve that the probe has made a surprisingly safe landing, touching down off the coast of Florida. Steve is sent to investigate. Lots of cool 70s TV budget-busting action follows, as Steve punches sharks and saves the lives of the men sent to retrieve the death probe. What I like about this is that Steve is injured in this scene, but it's a very subtle kind of injury, exactly like the show would do. Unlike the reboot comic, where Steve would have his arms and legs ripped off with alarming regularity, this is a minor nick, exposing some circuitry and analogue sparking. Of course, the leak from Steve's power pack feeds a space-born organism on the hull of the Death Probe. Elsewhere, Oliver Spencer returns with a new Android-inspired programme designed to replace Oscar's bionic initiative. The first issue brings back and sets up the stories to follow, looking back over the show's history. Oliver Spencer was originally in the pilot movie and played by Darren McGavin. He was a loose end, but the show largely ignored him after the initial pilot, retconning that Oscar was involved with Steve's rebuilding from the very beginning. Spencer was never referred to again. The Death Probe is here, making its third appearance after the fourth season episode Death Probe, a two-part story, and its sequel The Return of Death Probe in season five. A footnote in the issue refers to the episode The Return of Bigfoot from season four. Steve previously encountered sharks in the season five opening episode Sharks, imaginatively enough, starring Princess Ardala herself, Pamela Hensley. Spencer's new Android program, based upon the Maskatron toy doll, is based upon the research of Dr. Dolenn, seen in the episodes Day of the Robot, Run Steve Run, and Return of the Robot Maker. Any approach to continuity with regards to the Six Million Dollar Man is fascinating, given the series' own often contradictory internal logic. Farrah Fawcett, for example, appeared on the show four times, but only twice as the same character, Oddly, her first and last appearance. One of her characters, reporter Victoria Webster, resurfaces here. Each time the robot maker showed up on the show, he was played by the same actor, Henry Jones, but is given different forenames in each appearance, being either Chester or Geoffrey. It's entirely possible his name is Chester Geoffrey Delenz. Maskatron was a massively popular action figure associated with the series, and was kind of based upon the fembot scene in the show, so tying him into Dr. DeLenz's robots makes perfect sense. 
Maskatron, as presented in the toy line, never actually appeared on the show, so James Kahurik seems here to be rectifying that egregious error. As the story continues, Steve is sent to Russia to locate a devastating one-man armoured tank super weapon, similar to Iron Man's suit, in a plot that feels exactly like something the TV show would do. The tank is named Biyaga, which as we all know from John Wick means the boogeyman, although I bet he didn't kill a man with a pencil. A pencil? Who does that? This mission of Steve's is a last-ditch effort on Oscar's behalf to keep the Bionics program alive, after Spencer has convinced the Secretary to ditch it in favour of the Maskatron program. I have often wondered if the Secretary here was the same Secretary who gave Jim Phelps his orders. Spencer's argument is that Oscar has spent millions of dollars and created nothing but security risks. Maskatron removes the human element completely. To prove his statement, Spencer sends Maskatron after Barney Hiller, the $7 million man, but the mission goes tits up when Maskatron is shot and the bullets damage its receptors. Elsewhere, Dr. Joan Anderson, who was part of the Death Probe Retrieval Team, is accidentally exposed to the radioactive organism on the hull of the Death Probe. The continuity with the original show continues as the story progresses. Barney Hiller, originally Barney Miller, as I mentioned, was played by Monty Markham in the second season episode, The Seven Million Dollar Man, and its season three sequel, The Bionic Criminal. The name changes is referred to here as a typo by Oliver Spencer. This story also really leans into the more comic book elements of the show by embracing the series continuity and building upon it, as well as featuring various interweaving subplots. Oscar establishes here that the TV OSI was merged with the pilot film's OSO and Spencer was reassigned. Steve barely remembers Spencer, which I thought was quite interesting. TV characters seem to remember every moment of their lives in ways that normal people do not, so it was nice here to see Steve only partially remember Spencer. Maskatron has succeeded in its mission, retrieving Barney Hiller's bionics by literally cutting him bionic limb from bionic limb. He's fortunate he didn't have a bionic eye or a bionic ear. He'd have ended up like a reservoir dog. Steve's mission obviously goes belly up, and Dr. Joan Anderson has morphed into an alien xenomorph and is headed for Kennedy Space Center. The action is frenetic and well handled by the artist. Steve's mission to Russia and Jamie saving a plane from terrorists provides some good old-fashioned bionic fun. Steve realises that the Russian mission was compromised and returns to Oscar to tell him there's a leak in the OSI. Now, obviously there are a few discrepancies. If we are accepting this is a continuation of the television series. For one, at the end of the Bionic Woman show, Jamie was shown to be really dissatisfied with the OSI and wanting to leave to lead a normal life. This has not been addressed in this comic, apart from a single line of dialogue about her wanting to be free of the OSI. I'll give James Couric some great credit, though. Jamie seems far more like her TV show counterpart here than in her own season 4 comic book. Couric also does a great job with Barney Hiller, capturing Monty Markham's arrogance and self-loathing and echoing Steve's original thoughts that he wished he died rather than be used as an experiment for the OSI. It's a nice piece of character work, especially given that, let's be honest, Steve himself is a rather closed-door characterization wise 
Fueling Steve's anger seems to be one way to get an emotional reaction out of the character, as Maskatron, seeking Bigfoot, attacks the OSI and injures Jamie. Spencer has already been hauled over the coals for Maskatron's failure, and Maskatron has learned that Bigfoot was made into an organic being and sets out on his own to find him. Steve has pulled out all the stops to prevent Maskatron from doing any more damage, but this again offers more action than could really have been pulled off in the show, but it doesn't feel too far out of the series' reach. Likewise, Steve's anger at Maskatron being given his face is well played, even if Steve's anger is aimed at Oscar, who is quite blameless in this regard. Issue 4 ends with Steve's bionic arm rendered useless and one of his legs being damaged. With the bionics procedure shut down and operating on a minimal budget, Rudy does not have the funds to rebuild Steve Austin. Kuhurik takes a break in issue 5 to focus on the characters, and this proves to be a nice place for us to pause. With Steve out of commission, it's up to Jamie to head out to the Kennedy Space Centre and stop Dr Anderson, where we learn that all of her team have so far been infected by the death probe virus. Kuhurik has done a great job structuring this story, so that if it were an episode, this and issue 3 would have been episodes of the Bionic Woman, just like they did in the old days, where part 1 would be a $6 million man show, part 2 would be a Bionic Woman episode, and then we go back to the $6 million man to wrap it all up. There's a meeting between Spencer and Oscar that deepens Spencer's character and makes his actions understandable. His daughter is in a wheelchair following an accident, and his entire Maskatron program is purely about making affordable prosthetics for people with disabilities. This is actually a much nobler motive than Oscar, who has, at his fingertips, the ability to help millions of people worldwide with his bionics program, and has apparently never even thought of the good that these developments could provide for mankind. Spencer says it's over for him, though. His program's a failure. But Oscar can still save Project Cyborg. Spencer gives Oscar Hiller's broken, but still functional, bionic limbs. Hiller, meanwhile, has been approached by Dr. DeLenz, the robot maker, with an offer he can't refuse. I've mentioned on previous shows when I've looked at genre television of this era that a lot of US TV shows of the time, be it Knight Rider, Mission Impossible, Book Rogers, The Six Million Dollar Man, The Invisible Man, The Gemini Man, whatever man, the weak point is the lead. Normally they are bland, stalwart and true, always right, really expressing opinions on anything. Instead of being compelling leads, they end up being rather cardboard. Kahurik gets around this by giving the other characters the emotional motivations. The best episodes of Six Mill were the ones that involved Steve emotionally and actually allowed Lee Majors to do some acting, and Kahurik leans into Steve's feelings of guilt for Barney, his love for Jamie, and his anger to elicit a reaction. He takes Oliver Spencer and gives him a decent motivation for being who he is. I especially liked that, by his own admission, Spencer still thinks his procedure is the better one and actively dislikes Oscar and Steve, but he gives up his intel for the greater good. This deepens him significantly as a character. And it was all going so well 
until issue six. Now, I started to get a sinking feeling in issue five that there was far too much going on here to wrap this all up in one issue. I don't remember if this was solicited as a six-issue miniseries or not, but that's irrelevant. The series ends with issue six. Except it doesn't. Steve is implanted with Barney's bionics. It's not clear if both Steve's legs and arms are replaced with Barney's or just the arm, which was the most damaged. If the legs are changed, is Steve taller now? Because I think Monty Markham was taller than Lee Majors. A full refit would fit in with the dialogue, that Steve is more powerful now, as Barney was shown to be more powerful than Steve. Together, Steve and Jamie also solve Dr. Anderson's issues. They isolate her from the team and they revert to normal. Rudy says he should be able to isolate the problem and return Anderson to normal, so there are a couple of loose ends wrapped up. However, Spencer tries to mentally control Maskatron and is left in a coma. Dr. DeLenz has turned Barney into Robocop. Maskatron is left wandering the earth like Kane from Kung Fu, trying to locate Bigfoot. And meanwhile, the Russian colonel who is controller of the Bee Yaga has been implanted inside the death probe in like a Russian version of the Six Million Dollar Man. And that's it. Despite the last page promising to be continued, no sequel or continuation to this story was ever published. Dynamite did publish two further Six Mill series, the Fall of Man in 2016, and the eponymously titled The Six Million Dollar Man in 2019. I read neither of these, as neither of them seemed to pick up the threads of this series, the one I was interested in, and in the case of the eponymous series, it looked objectively terrible. It seemed to be very much in the vein of the spoof we were promised when Jim Curry was rumoured to be starring in a film version. This could have been a really cool conclusion to the show and it almost is it could have given us the closure we were denied with the cancellation or fed into the reunion telemovies in an organic way the abrupt cancellation of the comic though is arguably less satisfying than the show at least the moving mountain ended yes it was just another episode but it wasn't a cliffhanger we're left to imagine whatever future we want for steve following that adventure this leaves us dangling this was published in 2014, nearly a decade ago. We aren't getting a wrap-up, which is disappointing. It makes the whole endeavour feel worthless. I contacted writer James Kohurik over Twitter, and he told me this was plotted to be 18 issues. So why the remaining 12 issues never saw print, when two later, unconnected series did, I can't seem to find out. It's a shame. This Six Mill series seemed to be written by a good writer and fan of the show who knew what we wanted. A wink and a nod, but not a parody or a piss take. That seems to be in short supply sometimes. So instead of ending the show, as I may have hoped, we're left with more loose ends. It seems unlikely, but stranger things have happened. And maybe one day, Kahurik will be allowed to finish this story. Just when you thought it was safe to hear our podcast promo. 
make do 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 brave and bold do 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 comic books do 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 jail may jail may do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 jail may jail may do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 jail may the annual podcast crossover event celebrating the Justice League is back and we're covering the 2007 Brave and the Bold series that started with Mark Wade and George freaking Perez and ended with J. Michael Straczynski. Throughout the month of May, participating podcasts will release special episodes on issues in the run. It all kicks off in the Overlook Dark Knight podcast. Follow the event on social media using the hashtag JLMay2023. Coming this May. JLMay do 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 brave and the bold do 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 comic books do 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 Mephisto. Hey, that it? Is that what you want? Things I do for this show. Okay, should we check in with the bulging sack of email delights from whoever has emailed in? Let's have a scroll through, should we? Jack Bond has emailed in. Hello, Jack. Giant Doctor Who and the Robot. So was was Doctor Who giant? (laughs) As you know, we were introduced in the States to Tom Baker as the Doctor at the same time we were introduced to the Doctor. US TV was on a continuing quest for science fiction after the success of Star Wars, and the by then four years with Baker were thought to be big enough package for syndication. One station in New York City bought it and at the time decided to follow Ted Turner into becoming a superstation by shooting their signal into space and letting it fall back to Earth all across the country. I forget whether our cable company was slow to add it, Back then, they were merely the guy with the tallest antenna that could receive the most channels from distant cities, or whether I was slow to find it. But I missed the first two weeks, which meant, as they were showing two episodes back-to-back on Saturday morning, I started with the Ark in Space. But that's a pretty good introduction, though, isn't it? Isn't the Ark in Space generally considered to be a classic of its kind? Jack continues, I could write praise to that second story as an introduction. The far future arc as an ancient artifact, giving a sense of the vast vista of time. Then the Doctor talking about the million-year evolution of man as if he'd witnessed it. That was more my thing than a run-around with top-secret disintegration rays and robots that could somehow grow into giant size. I'm not saying it would have lost me as a viewer. They had me at that first photo, two inches high in black and white on newsprint of Tom poking his head out of that wooden guard shack or whatever you have in Britain. I think that was just taken in the BBC car park. I think it was, anyway. It strikes me that the two intentional beginnings of Doctor Who that the BBC also made followed that pattern of an earthbound story followed by one showing vaster stretches of time with the dead planet, about analogue to our future nuclear war in the distant past of another planet, with the end of the world, giving us some 6,000 years of history trailing into archaeology, trailing into paleontology, but millions of years of names and dates. I'm really glad that the introduction over here went that way too. That was good. I'm always interested in how things are shown in other countries. It's always quite fascinating to see. I was aware, mainly from Starlog magazine, that Tom Baker was the Doctor who made it over to America. But my understanding is some John Pertwee made it as well. Which is why, thankfully, we still have some John Pertwee episodes. And uh, Peter Davison. So... Excuse me while I take a drink. I don't know whether they were shown haphazardly. 
Like one week did you have a Tom Baker episode and the next week Peter Davison with no explanation? Because I can imagine that would be quite confusing. But thank you. Thank you, chat. That was good, that. Davis Samora has emailed in on matters of superpowered bugmen. Hi, Andy. Hi, Davis. It's been a while since I've last written in. I hope you're doing well. Well, so far, I yeah. am. First, I want to thank you for your unbiased brand new day coverage. I got into the comics during New Ways to Die, which had familiar characters but with new angles to their stories, and that hooked me. While I understood that to some people that era felt wrong or samey of old material, it was fresh and enjoyable to me as a teenager. Amazing Spider-Man 600 is one of my favourite single issues. It's a great package from cover to cover. If you ever want to review that books that came after it, especially the big time era, I'll gladly listen. I have every intention of continuing forward because I really do want to cover Superior Spider-Man at some point. So have no fear, that will come. You know, unless we, you know, blow ourselves up. Next, I listened to your Six Million Dollar Man episode and I wanted to give a recommendation for Cyborg TV that you might find interesting. 1971's Cayman Rider is largely a charming superhero show, but starts off with a dark, almost horror tone. The protagonist, Takeshi Hongo, is a gifted motorcycle racer and scientific genius, already everything you'd need to be in life, who'd kidnapped and modified, sorry, who's been kidnapped and modified to become a superhuman weapon. He escapes and makes it his mission to fight against the evil organisation that gave him his powers. Shocker. All the while, there's a healthy dose of pathos. He frequently wonders if the modifications have taken away his ability to be happy. He angsts the same way early Peter Parker did, really. I've heard of Cayman Rider, but never watched it. So I do quite fancy it, to be honest with you. Um... Davis says the first 13 episodes, basically it's first first season, are highly creative visually. And you can see how it was created by a manga artist, as it feels like a comic book come to life. If you're curious, it's on Shout Factory and YouTube. At the very least, it's theme tune, performed by the lead actor. So that ties in with Six Million Dollar Man and Lee Majors and the Fall Guy. Is worth checking out. That was good. That was good. Take care and thanks for the great podcast. It's always a good listen, regardless of familiarity with the topic at hand. All the best, Davis. All right, well, let's have a... So is the Shout Factory thing a DVD? Because I'm wondering if that will play over here. Or can it be watched for free on Shout Factory? I like that the first episode is called The Mysterious Spider-Man. And the second episode is The Terrifying Batman. <laughs> oh, oh, I do like these titles. All right, okay, I may have to check some of those out because they they do look like a great deal. Oh, this video is not available in your country. That sucks, man. Blimey, copyright law. <clears throat> All right, so the YouTube one seems to play. Okay, I will. I may have myself a look at that at a later date. The theme tune already sounds pretty cool, but anyway. Will uh... <laughs> this looks like Street Hawk? I liking it already. Anyway, yeah, we'll we'll I will have a look at that. I'll have a look at that. That looks quite fun. Uh, Dave Gutierrez has emailed in Eve of the Daleks. Re the love story between Thirteen and Yaz. According to Chibnall's interview at Gallifrey, the love story was always in the cards. He said it evolved as an idea through the first season. 
I think there was a line about Yaz having an ex-boyfriend early on in her first episode, but I can't say for sure. It's a bit hazy for me. Yeah, I don't remember that. And I have watched The Woman Who Fell to Earth for this. I did an entire episode on Jodie Whittaker's first season. I don't remember that at all. Man, I wish Astling B could be a companion. She's the best, isn't she? Yes. Yes, she is. And I in no way have a massive crush on her. And I don't think that came out in the episode at all. I think I was perfectly capable of maintaining that professional distance um, that is so necessary when doing an unbiased commentary on something. <clears throat> I love it whenever you talk who. Always great to hear. That's a hint. Will you take bribes, David M. Gutierrez? Yes, I will take bribes. Uh, I'm plotting some more who. This is its 60th. Uh, I think I may do a Peter Davison one next. We'll see how that goes. I've not decided which one to do. Five Doctors is a bit obvious, isn't it? And so's Caves of Androzani, so I may have to choose one that isn't obvious. And the, the, that Gallifrey One interview sounds interesting because a lot has come out since Chibnall stopped being the showrunner. Like the idea that the BBC were at one point considering cancelling Jodie's third season completely, like not doing flux at all because of the difficulty of filming a complex show like Doctor Who during a pandemic, which is why that ended up being cut from 10 episodes to 6 episodes. But apparently it was going to be cut completely. So I do wonder whether we'd have just gone straight from the second series to a couple of specials and then Jodie would have been gone. And that seems to me that it would have been a, a bit of a disservice to her if that's if that's what had happened. So as much as I thought Flux was enjoyable but a bit messy... It certainly seems that the behind-the-scenes drama explains why it was a bit messy. Anyway, thank you very much to Jack Davis and David for emailing in. It was very much appreciated. Good emails, though. Excellent emails. I will be back next time. I may return to Who with the Peter Davison episode I just talked about. Give that some thought. Uh, everything's going to be okay. Hopefully. And uh, take care, and I'll see you all again real soon. Goodbye.